Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're going to dive into a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and that is the intersection between our gut microbiome, our health, and the immune system, and of course, how food plays all into this. Our guest this week is Dr. Heather Zwicky. She's internationally recognized as an expert and educator in the fields of integrative medicine, natural therapies, and the immune system. Dr. Zwicky has been leading natural medicine research for 20 years. She has a PhD in immunology and microbiology from the University of Colorado, and she completed her postdoctoral studies at Yale School of Medicine. Heather speaks at conferences worldwide and is really amazing about sharing her enthusiasm for integrative medicine and science. She's won many awards for teaching, and she currently teaches at the National University of Natural Medicine, the University of Western States, and the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine. Dr. Zwicky's Heather Dr. Swicky's research focuses on Parkinson's disease, neuroinflammation, the microbiome, and the gut-brain axis. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Heather. It's great to see you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Well, maybe we can just start with some of the basics. What can you share with us about this intersection between our microbiomes and our immune system health? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, as an immunologist, we've known for a long time that what people are eating directly affects their immune system. But I think we limited it to vitamins. We would say vitamin D, vitamin A, those have a really strong effect on your immune system. And then eventually we figured out, oh, zinc and selenium and some of the minerals have an effect on your immune system. And as we kept going, we realized that a lot of the things that our microbiome was doing, were also having an effect on our immune system. So I think back 20 years ago, the Japanese were doing studies that looked at butyrate and butyrate having an anti-inflammatory effect, but nobody really knew where the butyrate was coming from. Fast forward, we started to realize, oh, the butyrate is coming from the microbes in our gut, but you have to eat certain foods in order for those microbes to produce butyrate. And so having an anti-inflammatory effect was ultimately dependent on which microbes were present in the gut and what you were feeding those microbes. So it wasn't just one thing. And as we then start to go ingredient by ingredient, we recognize that pretty much everything we eat is having an effect on the immune system, which is all mediated through our microbiome. Amazing. So our microbiome is a really complex ecosystem, right? You have many yeah. different bacteria and fungi and viruses. I guess one of the things that I'm still not fully understanding is what determines whether your microbiome is quote unquote healthy or not? Like what is a healthy microbiome? And I know this changes as we age, right? So it's not, we don't have the same microbiome our entire life, but are there, are there characteristics about our microbiomes that are important to having a healthy microbiome? I think the best answer for that is just yes. And then beyond that, we're still figuring it out. So 
you probably have a very different microbiome than I do. You're living in Georgia. I live in Oregon. We're exposed to different things in our environment. We're, we eat different uh, foods. We probably had different experiences with how we were born, whether we were breastfed, what the initial food exposures were, what medications we've been exposed to. All of those things determine our microbiome. Now, what is a healthy microbiome? People have been trying to define this for only about 10 years. Um, I mean, this is really a new field. And so far what they've come up with is a healthy microbiome is more diverse, so mm -hmm. has different combinations of microbes. And um, we call that diversity alpha diversity, um, which I know you've discussed with some other guests that you've had. Um, we also know that a healthy microbiome tends to have more firmicutes than bacteroides in terms of um, the class of microbe that is present. I'm like, wait, is that a class or a genus? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. so, so we know that there are certain microbes that tend to be present. Beyond that, we don't really know. Yeah. I mean, I probably know a bit more about the skin microbes than I do about the gut just because of my research. But I think one of the areas that's fascinating to me is if you think about the skin as almost like earth, you know, your armpits are like the sweaty jungle and your forearm is like a dry desert. And it turns out you have very different microbes in each of those sites. Um, and I think the same is true for different regions of your intestine too, right? You've got perhaps different composition. Yeah. Yeah. We call it niche environments. So different parts of the intestine, just like different parts of the skin, different parts of the lung, any place that microbes grow, they're going to tend to grow in a niche environment. Um, meaning that the microbes that thrive in sweat um, on your skin are going to be very different than the microbes that live in a very dry location, like the bottom of your foot. Um, and the same is going to be true for the intestine. As we go through, there are microbes that live in the stomach. There's microbes that live in the small intestine, early, high up in the small intestine. And then there are microbes that live as you get closer to the colon. And then the colon, of course, has the most microbes in the intestine. But we also are looking at microbes, for example, in the vagina, very different environment than microbes in the gut because they're exposed to air. So more similar to microbes on your skin, but it's a mucous membrane and the amount of oxygen they're exposed to is very limited compared to what's on your skin. So we see certain microbes growing in the vagina that we initially thought was populated by microbes from your gut probably not the case. Oh. Yeah. And we also now have started to identify um, enterotypes in the gut. So there are three different enterotypes, meaning that people who primarily eat meat have one enterotype. People who primarily eat sugar have a different enterotype. And then people who have plant-based diets have a third enterotype. So depending what your dominant food is, you're going to fall into a particular class 
where you're more likely to have one set of microbes versus a different set of microbes. When we get to the vagina, we've now discovered eight different types of vaginal um, microbiota patterns. Doesn't mean that everybody has that pattern all the time, because we know that as women cycle, those microbes shift. We know that um, those microbes are going to shift on whether or not someone uses a tampon. They're going to shift on whether or not someone has just had sex. So we know that all of the things we're exposed to are shifting our microbes. Now, if we go back to food, think about eating different things, and then think about fasting. When people go on a diet, we see a change in their microbiome within 24 hours. Wow. That's pretty huge. You starve microbes and some of them die immediately and others stick around for the long haul. So yeah, the, the microbiome is really interesting in how it shifts with everything that we're doing. Yeah. Well, as you're talking about the vaginal microflora, I'm immediately thinking of for any women that are listening that have ever had a vaginal yeast infection, that's where you have an overgrowth, a lack of diversity, right? right. A overgrowth of a certain species. Um, and so we can see that also in the gut, I guess, as well, when you have reduction in diversity, something really overgrows, like for example, um, I'm thinking of people with C. diff infections where you have other microbes knocked out. Um, that's when we start to see disease. So that would be considered an unhealthy microbiome, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, I, I think one of the important concepts to understand with this is that you can't have empty space. Mm. What that means is that if you have a species that is reduced, something else has to grow to fill the space because you can't have empty space in your gut. So what we've seen, and, and this is how I wound up in the field of Parkinson's, so there was a study that came out in 2015 that showed that people with Parkinson's were missing certain species of microbes and other species had overgrown to replace them. And those imbalances are directly correlated to inability to walk. Mm -hmm. So I don't think any of us expected in 2015 that your ability to walk smoothly was dependent on which microbes are in your gut. But we're starting to really understand why that's the case because we understand now that those microbes produce um, neurotransmitters, so serotonin, dopamine, some of the things that we know are involved in the nervous system and are involved in walking, but they're also producing inflammatory or anti-inflammatory components that then have an effect on neuroinflammation in the brain. So the microbes are directly influencing how our body is functioning. Wow. Well, I can see how they, they, yeah, I can see how that happens. There, there was a recent episode we had, um, I think it was earlier this year, perhaps last year with Vanessa Sparadiano from Wisconsin. She was doing work looking at, um, addiction and the gut and the gut microbiome. And I had no idea that bacteria could sense some of these neurotransmitters and like that there really is this, this feedback loop happening between, um, addiction and the gut. And oh, I think no there's question. also you know, pain in the gut. So there are so many different ways that we have these connected. Um, before we dive deeper into the neuroscience, I did want to step back just for a moment. 
to, to kind of explore this concept of microbes and the development of our immune systems. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you know, if you grow up without exposure to microbes, can that influence, um, you know, how your immune system is formed or can there be some dysfunction in your formation of your immune system or the training, I guess. I don't know if I'm using the right words here. You probably have better ways to say this. <laughs> 100%. No, um, we absolutely know that the development of your immune system is dependent on your exposure to microbes. So we know that from studies that have been done in germ-free mice. We also know that from babies who have been born prematurely, um, versus babies who've been born um, at at normal time, but also um, who is put in an incubator versus who is exposed to an external environment. So there's great research um, looking at uh, children who are born vaginally versus children who are born via C-section. Maria Dominguez Bellos does a lot of this research. And what they show is that children who are born vaginally are inhabited by microbes from mom's vagina and from um, her gut. And then if you breastfeed, you get your second round of microbes. So there are microbes on the nipple that then go and populate the gut. And then the food is coming from the breast milk. So we know the sugars in breast milk directly impact those microbes. Now, if you're born C-section, instead of being inhabited by microbes that come from mom's vagina and her gut, you're inhabited by skin microbes, which are not supposed to be living in the gut. And so you might ask this question of how long does it take for someone to re-equilibrate? And what the research currently suggests is it's somewhere between two and three years before a child will have a normal microbiota. And it's the introduction of solid food that actually starts to re-equilibrate the microbiota for people who are born C-section. But we we do know that folks who are born C-section, some of them never have a microbiome that is the equivalent of someone who's born vaginally. So um, there are practices that happen more on the West Coast than the East Coast, where when a child is born C-section, they'll take a swab of mom's vagina and put it in the child's mouth to try to populate their gut with the vaginal microbiota, because it does take so long to correct that in a child that's born C-section. Yeah. I, all three of my kids were born by C-section. Um, I wish I could have done it <laughs> through uh, sure. vaginal birth, but you know, that's something I've, I've worried about. I'm wondering, I've often wondered about the long-term consequences of this. And I don't know, is anything known? Like, are there long-term health consequences um, due to this, you know, lack of those microbiota in early development? Um, the biggest one that we're seeing is allergies. Mm. that kids who are born C-section tend to have a higher incidence of allergies. Now, again, you ask, can we correct it? And we sure can with exposure to environmental microbes. So we know that kids who have pets tend to have less allergies than kids who do not have pets. So Mm -hmm. we're we're getting exposed to microbes through pets. And if you think about it, which you may or may not want to think about it, um, we have dogs, but um, 
the dogs lick their privates and then lick their fur and then we pet the dogs and those microbes <laughs> are transmitted to our hands and ultimately to ourselves. And so that is bringing a microbial diversity that people who aren't petting dogs are not getting. We see this with dogs and cats. We don't see it with people who have pets that might be fish or lizards or snakes because you're not petting them the same way. And there's a different set of microbes um, because they groom themselves differently um, with reptiles, for example. But um, another thing, and I, I'm pretty sure you have one of these um, because I've listened to you talk before, but gardening. Gardening is actually really good at helping rebalance the microbiome because when you're digging in the dirt, again, you're being exposed to soil that is um, teeming with microbes, which just happens to be one of my books that I like. Um, and, and those microbes in the soil, again, are going to be introduced to your microbiome. So some easy easy. I say easy. That's because I live in the country and it's easy for me to have a garden. For people who are city dwellers, it might be a little bit more uh, complicated to get yourself a garden exposure. Well, you could dig around in your pots, I guess. <laughs> your, your balcony pots. Yeah. No, I think, I think it's an interesting dynamic because there's you know, rightfully so we have an emphasis on hand hygiene before eating, especially in like healthcare environments, you have frequent hand washing, but that comes down to different types of microbes. So the microbes that we're talking about now are not the types that are going to really cause disease. We're not talking about MRSA in your garden, right? No, not at all. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, we've gone through an evolution in how we think about microbes in that Historically, we knew nothing about them. And then when we initially discovered them, we discovered the pathogenic microbes. And so there was a fear associated with microbes. And as we've got, continued through science, we've now discovered that very few of the microbes that exist are actually pathogenic. It's something like 60 are pathogenic, whereas there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of microbes that we're exposed to daily. Only 60 are pathogenic. So we need to redefine our relationship with microbes to not fear them because so many of the microbes that we're encountering are good. Mm. And, and I think that takes a reset in how we think about things. We think microbe, coronavirus, run, you know, um, flu, run. Really, there's so many viruses that live within us. We don't have to fear all viruses. There are certain viruses that cause disease, but most of them do not. Mm -hmm. The same is true with bacteria. And in fact, with bacteria, there's even less of them that cause disease. And usually the same microbe that can cause disease, if it's a, a normal level in your body, is perfectly healthy. So you mentioned C. difficile at the beginning. Most people don't realize you and I probably both have C. difficile in our gut. And as long as it's at low numbers, we're just fine. It's when it overgrows that mm -hmm. it's a problem. So we have to think about it in terms of the ecosystem instead of good or bad. It's how much is there. Yeah. 
Well, this goes back to these other exposures you were mentioning. So one, one practice that can definitely reset your gut microbiome is the use of antibiotics. I mean, antibiotics are critical medicines that can be life-saving, but yep. there is a consequence, right? Um, when you, when you reset your gut and if you're on long-term antibiotics, that can also open up opportunities for bacteria like C. diff to kind of have an open niche. Um, what can you share with us about the role of probiotics or foods that we might want to consume to rebalance um, our gut microbiome in those cases of, of, of disturbance? Sure. So the first thing I would say is there was a really interesting study that came out in Nature in 2018 that showed that non-antibiotic medications are just as effective at killing off microbes as antibiotics. So mm -hmm. it's not just antibiotics. Any medication that you're taking is probably going to have an effect on your gut microbiome. Um, that includes the biggest ones were antidepressants um, mm. effect on the microbiome. We know that metformin has an effect on the microbiome. It tends to be a positive effect as opposed to a negative effect, but non-antibiotic medications as well as antibiotic medications are going to have an effect on the microbiome. So then the question is, okay, well, I can't avoid many of these medications, right? I, I have to take a medication. So what do I do to help my microbiome? And the first thing I would say is prebiotics as opposed to probiotics. Why? Well, prebiotics is food. And we know that those microbes in your gut are surviving on food. Um, and we had a study that came out in Cell in 2019 that showed that when uh, this was an animal study, the first part, so not in humans, but the first part of the study showed that giving a probiotic post antibiotics actually delayed reconstitution of hmm. the gut. Um, so, you know, our gut feeling is go to the probiotic because if we just killed off a bunch of microbes, then we want to add a bunch of microbes. But what most people don't realize is most probiotics are not alive by the time they reach your gut. Yeah. And they're very transient. The ones that do make it don't really stay. They right? don't stick around. Yeah. You know, the, the average probiotic is gone within 24 hours. Um, there was one study that showed that you could have as long as 13 days that a probiotic could stick around, but that only happened in 10% of people, 90% of people, those microbes were gone immediately. And, and not all probiotics are the same too. There's a lot of unknowns in the probiotic field. Oh, so I feel many. like it's, it's, it's those, those 20, $30 bottles. I'm just for the audience out there, buyer beware sometimes, because we really don't know which of these is, is effective and how long they actually last still. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And as somebody who studied microbiology, I have to say um, probiotics are one of the most frustrating things to me in the world because people will say, oh, probiotics work for this. That's such a general phrase. That's like saying drugs work for this, right? <laughs> it matters which strain, which microbe, what the dose is, what the diagnosis is, how long you're taking the probiotic. But it, I mean just the difference between lactobacillus versus bifidobacterium is enormous. And mm -hmm. I have my students go through and compare studies that have looked at lactobacillus species beside bifidobacterium species 
turns out two different strains of the same lactobacillus can have completely different effects. So yeah. it really matters which probiotic you take. So I go back and I go prebiotics first. Let's start with food. Let's feed the microbes that you have. Let's get them back into balance with food. And Rob Knight, who is kind of the United States expert in gut microbiome, um, he's at UCSD, University of California, San Diego. He did a really interesting study with what is called the American Gut Project. Um, this one came out it's either 2018 or 19. I don't know about you, but reading all the papers through the pandemic, I started to lose my years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, what they showed is that what matters, they were studying which is the best diet for the microbiome. And they thought they were going to have something jump out like vegetarians have a much better microbiome than carnivores. Turns out none of that was true. Turns mm. out what mattered most is that people eat 30 plant-based foods per week, 30 plant-based foods per week, not 30 servings. It matters more the diversity of the plant-based foods that people are eating. Yes. And, and is so this, is this including some of these hyper-processed foods? This is one thing I, you know, you can be a very unhealthy vegetarian if you're sure eating can. all processed, you know, hyper-processed <laughs> vegetable materials. Um, yeah, I can't True. get on a soapbox about that. But <laughs> one of our sons was like, well, little Debbie Swiss cake rolls are plant-based technically. I'm like, <laughs> oh gosh, no, not ultra-processed foods. So ideally this is going to be whole foods. Um, and I, what, what that study showed is spices matter. So oh, adding spice, and so it's not a huge volume of food there, right? Adding basil to your sauce doesn't add a huge volume, but it absolutely makes an effect on the microbiome. Pepper makes an effect, cayenne pepper versus black pepper, rosemary, all those things, all the spices made a difference. Mushrooms make a huge difference. Probably one of the best microbiome feeding foods that we have. And they've done research on does it matter if it's a white button mushroom or a shiitake mushroom or reishi or, or what kind of mushroom? The answer is it does. And it doesn't matter um, from a microbiome perspective. It doesn't matter whether you eat a reishi or a white button mushroom for a diversity. It matter. It, it will change the population of microbes in your gut, um, but all of them increase diversity. Great. And that's what we want to go for, right? It's all about diversity. We want, don't want to foster just one type of bacteria or yeast to overgrow. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I've done work in other countries as you have. And one of the things that we see in other countries is that they have a more diverse diet. Mm -hmm. And as such, they have a more diverse microbiome. The other piece that they still have in their microbiome for many countries is they still have intestinal worms. And one of the things that we've seen in industrialized countries where we've eliminated all intestinal worms is an increase in allergies and an increase in autoimmunity. So it looks like one of the aspects that helminths played in our gut historically was anti-inflammatory and reducing allergies and autoimmune disease. And as we kill off worms, 
we have an increase in allergies and autoimmunity. Wow. I think I just figured out the secret to why I don't have allergies. I got worms all the time as a kid because <laughs> I was always barefoot and drinking out of creeks and doing all the bad things you're not supposed to do in the woods. Pretty much every time I've gone to Tanzania, I've come home with a worm infection. So yeah, it's, um, but it's interesting how many people in the United States are terrified of worms because they didn't yeah. grow up with them. Whereas it's pretty common in many countries. I, I think of my colleagues, we did a study in Nicaragua very common that every three to six months you just take a deworming pill. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about the elimination of worms. Um, a colleague of mine at Oregon Health and Science University has been showing that currently in Guatemala, they are eradicating worms. And as they eradicate worms, they're seeing the rise of rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, interesting. Yeah. At the same time, though, I mean, if you get too many, too heavy of a Hellman's load, then you can, you know, leads leads to anemia and respiratory disease, sure. make you more susceptible to other diseases like malaria. Yeah, it's it's, it's a balance, it's right? Balance. It's, it's a balance, but mm -hmm. it's that whole piece of balance. If you get too many of any microbe, you're going to have mm -hmm. an infection, and too little is also bad. So we need to find this balance where we're not overgrowing or undergrowing we're in balance so you asked the question about antibiotics i want to come back to that paper and sell for a minute mm -hmm. so they showed that um probiotics are detrimental they're delaying repopulation after antibiotics so let's stop giving ourselves probiotics when we're on an antibiotic let's move to prebiotics but the other thing that they studied was fecal transplant mm. And I feel like that is a direction that we have to pay attention to. Um, fecal transplant is this concept that if you have a healthier gut than I do, I could actually take your fecal matter and repopulate my gut and it could eliminate disease. And this has been a successful strategy for going back to C. diff. I mean, this has been a strategy to help, um, help people. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of a gross idea that you are literally eating, you know, you're eating shit, but you're not dying. You're living because it's done in a, in a right way in a controlled setting with, that's like, right. We call it a pill. smoothie, um, <laughs> like, yeah. which is kind of disgusting poop smoothie, but, but it's not anymore. Historically, yeah. um, people did all sorts of things. Now what they do is they desiccate poop yeah. and put it in a capsule. And it's just like you're taking a regular supplement or something. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting in Parkinson's is that there have been two studies out of China and one out of Israel that shows that you can essentially reverse Parkinson's with a fecal transplant. So wow. what's happening is the dysbiosis in the gut is leading to this phenotype of Parkinson's. And if we can repair the dysbiosis, Hypothetically, Parkinson's doesn't have to be a fatal disease. Hypothetically, we're still in the infancy stages, but it tells us that there is a gut origin and that that gut origin is critical to how that disease manifests. We're seeing that with Alzheimer's as well. We're also seeing it with autism. So a lot of the neurological disease and the neuroinflammation is actually having its origins in the gut. And so how, how are these, these ideas, how can these be tested in humans? Because I'm also curious, 
you know, this is not the same as a typical drug trial, right? Where you have a specific molecule, we know the exact concentration, we know what's in the pill, we give it to the patient in a double-blinded situation. With a fecal microbiome transplant, you've got a pretty big mixture, right, right, of microbes, and they're not all I don't know if are those being sequenced? Like how do we standardize these types of trials or or is that technology available yet? Uh A, it's not available, and B, I'm not sure that it ever will be. Mm-hmm. Um and I I wonder personally, is it the microbe or is it the metabolites? And let mm-hmm. me tell you why. Okay. So we know that. As I, as I mentioned before, you and I are going to have different microbes because of where we live and our exposures and our environment, et cetera. Interestingly, when we do that as a population study, um, this is a paper done by Visconti et al. in 2018. They showed that you and I would likely have 27% microbes that overlap or less. That's wow. not very many right? But our metabolites, 84% overlap. So what matters is not which microbes are there. What matters is what are those microbes making and what are they doing? And I think that makes sense, right? The functionality is really where the rubber hits the road. So there have been studies of fecal transplant, and now there are studies starting to happen with what are called postbiotics. So prebiotics are the food that you feed yourself, probiotics are the live microbes, and postbiotics are the metabolites that those microbes make. And metabolites are chemicals that the microbes are producing and releasing into your body. Okay, just to be clear for the audience. Absolutely. So for example, if you eat grains and you feed it to a microbe, the grain is the prebiotic, the microbe is the probiotic, and then the postbiotic would be the short chain fatty acids that those microbes make as a result of digesting the grain. And what your body is using is the metabolite, they're using the postbiotic. So there are now studies um, started in agriculture, in the cows, um, where instead of doing a fecal transplant, they actually have transplanted just the metabolites from fecal material. And the metabolites alone have almost the same effect as the probiotic, as the bacteria. In other words, you don't need to have live bacteria. You need the metabolites. So it's kind of like a plant extract, except instead of extracting the plant, you're extracting like fecal material. Is that the idea? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we can measure the metabolites Yeah. because they're not alive. We're having a huge problem when we're doing fecal transplants of how many of this microbe, how many of that microbe, et cetera. Whereas if you go to the metabolites, those are chemicals. We've been using chemicals in pharmacology for years. Mm-hmm. We know how to measure them. So could we standardize to a particular metabolite? Absolutely. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think where this veers away from pharmacology is it's not going to be a single molecule, Mm -hmm. right? If you take a a complex disorder like Parkinson's, it's going to take more than one metabolite to fix it. And what we're seeing is it's the combination of metabolites working together that are actually starting to shape how that microbiome is affecting the human who has Parkinson's. So we can't go to a 
a reductionist model, we have to go back to the complex model of all of the microbes are producing things and all of those things are important and it's not yeah. going to be one. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me because there is so much, I think, resistance and, and, in, in pharma, in our regulatory pathways against polypharmacology in this context. But yet at the same time, if you look at some of our major therapies to treat cancer, to treat HIV, we use multiple compounds. We use drug cocktails because right. it does work better. Uh, we got to those cocktails through reductionist paradigm of getting one compound and developing it and then the other one. In this case, we're you know, it's, it's looking at this, this mixture and this is how plants work as well. As you know, like absolutely plant metabolites. Yeah. 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 And it's probably one of the reasons why when you go back to, um, the plant-based diets and 30 plant-based foods per week, you have to have that combination in order to get all of the different metabolites you need in order to be a truly healthy human being. Mm -hmm. So, um, there, there is one study, which I should tell you about because I know you love fermented foods. I, 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 I've been waiting to, to talk about fermented foods. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Sonnenbergs at Stanford um, did the study that showed up Rob Knight's group. So Rob Knight's group said 30 plant-based foods, and they said, I bet we can do one better. Let's look at fermented foods. So they started looking at people who were eating fermented foods and looking at their microbial diversity and their health outcomes. And what they showed is people who ate more than three fermented foods per week. Um, and when I say three, I mean three diverse foods, not um, three servings. Um, if they ate more than three fermented foods per week, they were healthier than people who were on the 30 plant-based foods per week. Why three? Well, because for the people who ate one or two fermented foods, the one and two were beer and wine. So you actually had to add a real food like sauerkraut, kombucha, yogurt, etc. We're talking about like foods with live microbes exactly. in them, not just the byproducts. <laughs> <laughs> if you have the actual food and sauerkraut tends to be the best for this, um, yeah. then you actually saw increased microbial diversity beyond 30 plant-based foods per week. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, we eat lots of fermented foods. I mean, everyone listening does, if you drink coffee, if you eat chocolate, if you eat bread, but there's a difference there and that those, you know, aren't going to have the live microbes like you would have and cheeses and dairy, you know, fermented dairy and sauerkraut. We're actually going to be making um, sauerkraut in class next week for my uh, students. It's, it's one of my favorite lessons because it's just amazing to see how microbes can transform a food, you know, a vegetable to something that's totally different and, and nutritious. Um, I remember being in college and making root beer. And so uh -huh. you're adding raisins as the sugar source for the yeast and, and I, I gave my root beer to my mom for Christmas and she did not put it in the refrigerator. Uh -oh, my That's right. My mom's a biology teacher. You think she would know better, but no, she uh, she left it on the counter and it exploded and embedded glass in the backs of the chairs. And yeah, because those yeast keep growing anytime they have a food source. So yeah, that's right. The right temperature and some and some sugars will do well. <laughs> I think I think all this goes back to a lot of the principles of traditional indigenous diets as as you've studied as well as you know this idea of 
really staying away from these ultra processed foods. I think that's probably one of our greatest dangers to our gut microflora, um, you know, and really seeking towards whole foods, whole grains, whole vegetables. Um, it's such a simple concept, but yet it's so hard to follow that in the Western diet, you know, the sad diet, standard American diet is sad. We have to move away from that. Well, and I think one of the other things that we can, you know, logically it makes sense, but we don't think about it is if you have to put a preservative into a food to kill microbes so that that food can have a shelf steady life, that same preservative is going to kill microbes in you right? Mm -hmm. The preservatives are killing our microbiome. And we know that now. And yet most of us do not shop around the outside edge of the grocery store. We still walk up and down the aisles and we grab those foods that have preservatives in them. And so one of the um, groups who studies this out of Ireland has actually shown that when you kill off species of microbes in you, if you kill them off 100%, there's no bringing them back. And they don't show up in the offspring either. And they've gone multiple generations. So we really have to pay attention to the fact that we need to not be killing our microbes. We need to protect them. And the only way to do that is to avoid those preservatives and avoid the ultra processed foods. It's really funny. There was a paper that came out this summer that where they attempted to make a 100% healthy, ultra-processed food diet. And I just wanted to tear my hair out because I'm like, no, <laughs> these are incongruent with each other. Yes, yeah. maybe you can hit all the food groups. Maybe you can hit the right calories, but ultimately you're still not feeding all of the right microbes. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing that's interesting about fermented foods is because let's take, for example, a jar of, of kosher pickles, like not vinegar, like steeped, but actually that are made in a salt brine, that salt brine changes in acidity. There are still live microbes that are beneficial to your body in that brine, but the ones that could cause disease are not able to survive. That's so right. that's an example where you have a food preservative that, that caters to, um, naturally caters to those organisms that are good for us. Um, there's, there's just so much to learn. I'm really excited to see how the science here involves. I'm excited to keep an eye on like all the cool things you're doing in your research. Um, and we're almost out of time, but I just want to ask, I love to ask this guest of, uh, of this question of my guest is, you know, do you have uh, a favorite recipe you'd like to share or any advice on, you know, what types of foods might we think about incorporating into our diets to have more of a neuroprotective microbiome protective diet? Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest thing is spices. So when we look at the field of Parkinson's, we see that rosemary, curcumin, cinnamon are so effective in animal models uh, um, that they block Parkinson's in animal wow. models. They're all being created into drugs, but we both know the drug pipeline takes, you know, roughly 20 to 25 years. So people can cook with those things right now. Um, we were talking yesterday with some of my postdocs about um, preventing dementia. And again, the best thing that we can see with preventing dementia is cooking with spice. The mm -hmm. spice is really what your microbes like. They turn it into all sorts of neurotransmitters and super, super healthy. So I, I would say 
if there's going to be one thing you want to do, cook with spice. That's great. So it doesn't have to be all hot, hot spices. No, right? no, it doesn't no. have to be cayenne. It could just be like Mediterranean herbs, like mint, peppermint, uh, rosemary, sage, or these types of things, cinnamon. Yeah. Or, you know, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I okay. mean, I think it's easy. Um, I, I always tell folks, you know, drink tea because there's lots of herbs in mm -hmm. tea. Um, cook with spice and you're going to amazingly get to those 30 plant-based foods per week, probably on your first or second day, because adding some spice is not that difficult. That's great. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for sharing your wisdom with us and these really exciting studies. I learned a lot and I'm sure the audience did as well. Thanks for having me. Great. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded for you today on Restream. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth, who help us put on an amazing show each and every week for you all. If you'd like to catch this episode and others, you can head over to our a website. It's at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also go to our YouTube channel. It's the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel where you can catch the video version of this episode. Um, and uh, we also have the Nature's Pharmacy newsletter. We'll have additional show notes and a little write-up about this episode and some other useful resources. So thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and we'll see you next time.